0: And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf... No, oh, not. not with that. That was awful. That was bad. You'd think I'd have it down by now, wouldn't you? I would think so. But, you know, you want it to be a little different every week. It's, people will know we don't have a pre-recorded introduction when you do this. And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, where the sky is blue, the lawn is green, and the rain is pouring down. It's... Jonathan Strun and Gary K. Wolf on The Coot Street Podcast Welcome to rainy weather I guess well, Actually um, it's sunny
1: <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's, 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 it's been bleak here It's I, I'm, I'm guessing it's warmer there in winter Than it is here in summer We're having the coolest July day I think in, in years It's yeah. 65 degrees Tops which was like what's 18 or 19 degrees
0: Wow. And I suspect that's probably About what your temperature is Yeah, I mean, I think today it's supposed to be 19 or 20 degrees centigrade with a few clouds. I mean, we've had some real rain the last few days, but um, just a little bit kind of yeah, gray and overcast. We're going to go do some nice things once we're finished chatting here about all things science fictional, Mm -hmm. um, which should be fun. You know, the the joys of of, um, doing family stuff.
1: And I will. Ha- I, I did that last night. I was I was watching grandkids and uh, taking them to dinner and shopping and staying over and that sort of thing. So you it's make always such a chore. Well, it, it it's it, they're enjoyable. There 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 are a lot of things that you can get mileage out of with fourteen year old kids. I don't know if you, yeah. um, have gotten this news. If our listeners have gotten this news outside of the states, but it's sort of been annoyingly prominent in the states in New York. Mayoral candidate.
0: Yeah
1: named Andrew Weiner. Oh, I've heard his name. Okay. Yeah, of course. It's 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 just it's something that Gore Vidal would have made up (laughs) uh, 30 years ago. Yeah, but basically he was he was sending photographs of his genitals to women who didn't want to receive them uh, and that came out and it became such a scandal. He had to uh, He had to resign from the United States House of Representatives and then a few years later, he went through therapy, and and he um, he decided to run for mayor of New York. And then a bunch of more photographs of his genitals sent <laughs> to unwilling women came out, and and now he's he's not resigning from the or race at all. But but he's he's a, he's an astonishingly comic figure. Now the point is, when you're talking to like um, my grandsons are between eight and fourteen, yeah, uh, and granddaughter who's going to be fifteen. When you're talking about that age group, do you realize how much mileage you can get out of talking about a politician who takes pictures <laughs> of his own
0: genitals and his name is Wiener? I mean, they couldn't well, stop laughing. I'm sure they couldn't stop laughing as they came to respect their politi- you know, the politicians that represent them, as you no doubt intended, Gary.
1: <laughs> well, yes, of course. I wanted them to learn about the American system of democracy.
0: Don't tell me it's all freedom of expression, Gary. Well,
1: well, one of the things that does occur to me when you look at uh, – I, I, I don't know. What, it wieners um,
0: genital, genitals?
1: Well, I don't know. I, I know there are goofy politicians in, 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 in the UK and, and, and eccentrics, and I'm sure there are in Australia sure. as well. But there's there's a point at which when you go back and look at satirical books about, about politicians, even if they were science fiction books or marginally science fiction books. Yeah. Uh, Sinclair Lewis novels, or Gore Vidal novels, or even things like the Space Merchants—they didn't even come close. We are way crazier than they imagined. <laughs> really.
0: I believe that's I absolutely thought,
1: true. I think it's, it's unfortunately true, but politics and science fiction is something we should talk about at some point because imagining future politics is a very—it's it's something that that British writers do much more conscientiously. Uh, than American writers in, in, in general, I think.
0: It's fascinating uh, you should say that because I've just been reading about that stuff. Uh, as you know, Gary, mm-hmm. you know to, to allude to another news announcement, which we didn't, uh, my Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year has just changed homes. It's now coming out from Solaris Books. Yes. And I've been reading personfully uh, for, the, um, for Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 8, and I've come across quite a bit of quite political... Science fiction from mostly from non-American writers. I confess, I've just been reading a book called, uh, well, a project called "An Aura of Familiarity: Visions from the Coming Age of Networked Matter," mm. which is a set of six stories set in a world where all n- matter is, by, is interconnected and networked in some way. You know, so like mm. uh, bottles of water that talk to you, and that you know, the, your chair t- talking to the table, talking to, to the all connected together, and. You know the best of the stories that I've read. That there's in that uh, in there is a story called Water by Rami's Nam. Now Rami's Nams a new I think American writer, but it looks the, the, whole, the package overall looks British to me. And this is this is very much a space merchants kind of a story. It's about the impact of advertising in a networked future, and it's really a very faci- fascinating story. But the one that really came home to me was I just finished reading. Zero to Tolerance, I think it's called. Zero of Tolerance. Or zero, no, Zero for Tolerance, which is the new novelette by Greg Egan. Mm-hmm. That's coming out in the next of the... Um, oh, gosh. Ta- what do they call themselves? I've gone blank now. Isn't that terrible? You, you know, this, uh, but this this story basically tells the story... is it, about a, a girl growing up in um, Iran who... Uh, is a v- very gifted when it comes to you know, sort of researching chemistry, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happens when, in a traditional Iranian household, she discovers a room temperature superconductor? Hmm. And it's fascinating. Fascinating. The Technology Review, yeah, you know, they did their special SF issue a year ago. Right. I remember Well, they're that. doing another one called Twelve Tomorrows that's coming out in September, and Greg's story's in that.
1: That could be very interesting. And of course, he's always been uh, when he's not. Well, actually, he's been fairly politically sophisticated, even in, in, in the most recent trilogy, the Clockwork Rocket trilogy. Or oh, very game. much. Um, but but there's also his involvement with the uh, refugee situation, which um, he'd written at least indirectly about in his. Oh, I'm, I'm now I'm blanking on the title of the one. Uh, more or less domestic novel that he did that took place on earth that dealt with the refugees The the um...
0: I know the one you mean but yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll try and find you know, we'll, think we'll, we'll think about it eventually uh, I was I, I
1: was struck by this uh, not simply because of thinking that uh, American politicians are more more bizarre and funnier than the science fiction writers of 20 and 30 years ago thought they could possibly be but because I was looking through uh I, well as, as you know I've been reading the the best-of-the-year anthologies from Gardner-Douzois and Rich Horton, uh, which are different from each other. Both are different from yours. And it struck me that there's a fair amount of steampunk represented. The one story that jumped out at me in Rich Horton's collection, which you and I may have talked about briefly on an earlier podcast, uh, was Nick Mamata's um, Arbeitskraft. Oh, yes, yes. And Arbeitskraft is not simply politically sophisticated, it's ideologically sophisticated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really thought through Engels' version of Marx's thought, Yep. And and his imagination of what Marxist thought would have been in a kind of steampunk environment. And it occurred to me when I was reading that, <clears throat> that, and I, I said this in a review which will be any forthcoming issue of Locust, that it's probably the most ideologically sophisticated steampunk story I've seen. Because one of the things that's almost de rigueur in steampunk stories yep. is you have to acknowledge the fact that there was a brutal class system in Victorian England. And there was a brutal colonial system in Victorian England. None of this is necessarily news to anybody.
0: Well, Um, no, I mean, uh, it's either that, actually, the thing that makes it sort of constantly political is you're either overtly acknowledging it and trying not to talk about it. And the two stories, and we talked about this last year or the year before, that really uh, have grabbed this by the throat are Nick's story, Arbitzcraft, and uh, Kate Kiernan's story, uh, Goggles 1910 or whatever it was. Or 1890. Goggles 1890. Um... And, but a lot of the rest of them have to almost like overtly how would i put this they almost have to overtly pretend that it's not there you know it's like i'm either over, you know deliberately not discussing the political the politics of this situation or um i'm grabbing it by the throat and talking about it so. or, or or
1: or more also the third alternative is simply acknowledging yes this is a horrible situation and then moving on from there and not not dealing with it not dealing with the sources of it not dealing with what it means uh, but 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 playing with it uh, in, in, in the kind of offhand way yeah uh, there are writers who consistently think about the underclass I mean uh, China me has not written a, a steampunk story per se but Kraken has steampunkish elements in it yeah uh, and certainly he's he's well aware of of, of, of classes but but simply being aware of, of, of an oppressive class system or colonial system isn't really the kind of thing that the Caitlin Kernan story do or that the uh, Nick Mamata story do. They really grapple with what the meaning is of those sort oh, of sure. political philosophies. Um, the other kind of political fi- science fiction which you see these days a little bit—I say a little bit—is that you see a lot of it from Cory Doctorow. But the young adult novels are yeah. overtly political. Yeah, uh, they're political, but they're so immediately political that I wonder what they're going to look like to people ten and fifteen years
0: from now. I don't know. Some things are going to be so uh, so uh, contemporary that they don't tr- travel, and we've worried about that with Little Brother particularly before. I mean, I remember reading Little Brother just when it was just before it came out, mm-hmm. and it seemed like the most con- most contemporary, most challenging, most interesting story that Corey could possibly have written, and was certainly at that point I thought his most engaging, complete novel. Um, however, much like another book in the recent history of science fiction that had a political element to it, Charlie Strauss's Accelerando, mm. it felt like it was going to date before your very eyes. Now, that doesn't mean it will, but it felt like it was going to.
1: I think it may go through a period of dating and and sort of re-emerging as, uh, as, as, as undated in a weird way. And the reason I mention that is because, again, going back to something like The Space Merchants, some of the novels that came out in the early 50s, and The Space Merchants was one – that seemed like it was so much about the rise of advertising agencies in the early 50s, the rise of consumerism, the influence of television, uh, that and and a lot of the stuff in it is dated. I mean, the the mega corporation that wants to take over the world is Nash Kelvinator, you know, yeah. uh, the combination of a now defunct car company with a now defunct refrigerator company. Uh, but when when we put it in that Library of America thing, the response that got was this this may have seemed dated by 1955, but by 2013, it's back
0: in style again. Sure. Well, and certainly the subjects are remarkably contemporary and timeless. I mean, as I say, with the the Rami's Nam story, Water, which I'm shocked to find out was his first published story, even mm-hmm. though he's got a couple of novels out, I think, from Angry Robot. Um, and he's a technologist, I think. Yeah. The way this story discusses how... Advertising will impinge upon us in the future how it will be a class system. You know what I mean? Like, you think right now, if you buy a Kindle, right? You've got a choice. You buy one with ads, one without. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one without, without ads is cheaper. Well, imagine you have neural implants which allow you to be smarter, faster, process the world better, and all that kind of thing. But they're quite expensive. And one of the ways of reducing the costs for them is to accept a certain level of advertising in your day-to-day world. Which makes...
1: It sounds almost
0: inevitable, actually. Yeah, and then when you get well, when you get down to think, well, then you push it forward as, as Nam does, and actually in, in implies in the story that, you know, if you have enough money, you can get a high enough level implant that when you send out your uh, advertising, you can advertise on a personal level as well as on a business level, so you can begin to start targeting your appeal specifically at someone you're attracted to, so that they will be attracted to you. Hmm. It's a really intriguing story, um, and a, I mean a really good set of stories. And do you know where you can find out about it, Gary? Plug, plug. Where can we find out about this? Well, Gary, uh, as part of the Cood Street Podcast School of Media, media, you know, sort of stuff, we have we now have a Pinterest board, Gary, and I've mm. pinned information about this to our Pinterest board. <laughs> Which itself is one of those things that I don't know if anybody would have thought of as recently as 10 years ago as a science Not fiction. at all, not at all. But, you know, there, there, actually, the other guy who's doing a lot of political science fiction, actually, is Tim Mon, who's another up-and-coming uh, hmm. British science fiction writer. He's had a handful of stories out. He was in uh, ARC last year. He had a very well-received story a year or two ago called Paintwork, and he had a self-published ebook of short stories. And he has a story out this year called Flight Path Estate, mm. which is um, it's from a book called, if I remember correctly, Let's All Go to the Science Fiction Disco, Volume 1 of Adventure Rocket Ship. And whilst Let's All Go to the Science Fiction Disco is not something that immediately grabs my attention or something I want to read, mm. uh, just as a, as a personal thing of interest, There's a handful of really, really strong stories in it, and this one for me really stood out. Um, Basically, a whole sort of taking on the whole kind of Occupy Anonymous kind of thing, and the whole and and the issue of U.S. drone strikes and putting into a science fiction uh, context. So it's really interesting, really good stuff. There's there's actually mm -hmm. go ahead. There's a whole batch of very interesting semi near future political science fiction coming out right now from people like this.
1: Well, we should mention also that, uh, again, and I'm not meaning to um, overlook my own country, but, but in, in England, at least, we've had consistently uh, writers like Ian MacLeod, sure, uh, certainly Ian Banks, uh, yes. but Ian McLeod's near-future science fiction has been very sophisticated in terms of dealing with relationships between England, Ireland, and Scotland, and that sort of thing. So it's it, it's not as though it, it isn't um, a, a, a tradition. I don't think it's been a part of the popular aspect of science fiction. I don't think you see... Um, when, when, you, when you look at almost any kind of science fiction media these days, you don't get a sense there's any political sophistication behind it really at all.
0: Now, no, hang on. Do you, do you mean at a mass media level like it, when you're watching Pacific Rim, or do you mean when you're reading a Dune novel from Kevin Anderson or, or a Star Wars novel? What, what level of science fiction are you referring to? Well, I, th- I, th- I, think we're,
1: I think we're getting into the same general territory there. I mean, essentially... Uh, the, the, I've not seen Pacific Rim. I intend to see it soon, and I gather it will be a lot of fun. It is fun. The Star Trek movies, the Star Wars movies, the uh, the, the the Prometheus and that sort of thing. I gather that the one Elysium, which is coming out later this summer, uh, does have a sort of political message to it. But it looks to me like it's exactly the same political message that the movie Wall-E had. <laughs> well, probably which, I haven't seen it, but I don't. The a- live in a decadent space station, and the Earth will be left to. Um, yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen the trailer for it. Yeah.
0: Um Having seen Pacific Rim just last week, I mean, there is some political stuff in the background of the of the story. There's no doubt about it because the Earth is being attacked one way or another, and the people who are being most affected are the poorest people, and they're the ones who are being um, press ganged into work to try and come up with a solution. So there's no mm-hmm. doubt that the uh, poorest people are you know not, are mo- are worst affected, and that's sort of the political element. But in truth, a mo- movie about giant monsters coming up from a mysterious rift in the pacific floor and where our logical solution is to build enormous robot suits to fight them with isn't going to be a terribly sophisticated political statement i would have thought
1: no and i have, and, and it, it probably shouldn't be uh i mean after all this is this is a product being marketed for a certain kind of audience i guillermo del toro is somebody who i admire i Still of the last several years, Hellboy 2 is one of my favorite fantasy movies. Yeah, and he's too smart to let things go entirely, but he's also too smart to not do what is expected of him, which is to do a gig- an enormous tribute to uh, Gohera movies, together with, I guess, a, a side sideways allusion to Transformer movies. Yeah, I mean it's, it's it's not even Transformers. It, it looks to me, and I have not having seen it, that it's a cross between the Dino De Laurentiis disastrously bad film which had unfortunately joe haldeman is the only screenwriter credited called robot jocks yeah which was about the giant fighting machines with human operators i remember very much the same concept here but so it looks like a cross between that and uh the the remake of the godzilla movie which also had a really big ugly monster in it and (laughs) nothing else I have, speaking of those we will we'll get on to more serious things because politics is certainly serious and we, we didn't prepare for that but I spent I decided it's something that a critic should do to try to understand the various dimensions the various layers the various public perceptions of what we do in science fiction mm-hmm. and I discovered that this is this is apparently shark week on the sci-fi channel. <laughs> I knew we at, were end up see, here. so I I I I sat, I'd seen all these tweets about um, Sharknado. Yeah, 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 two hours, three hours ago before we're recording this, I sat down and said, "Okay, it's a good, it's a good evening. It's it's, it's a fest that they're they're doing Sharktopus first. Yep. <laughs> so I, I more or less watched Sharktopus. Idea. Yep, yep, yep. So these are the kind of movies. There are two ways of watching these movies. Either you're answering your email and playing with Twitter, or you have a bunch of drunk friends over. Yep. Um And I've decided that uh, Sharktopus was. I thought Sharktopus was really dumb. Yeah. And then I started on Sharknado. Yeah. And there is, and the only reason this is important is to understand that when I talked, like my grandkids who are really impressed by a politician named Anthony Weiner, they think that that's what science fiction is. They think that's what I'm involved with. So I need to be able to learn how to talk about these things. And I'm convinced of two, th- and and some of these things, by the way, were actually produced by Roger Corman, who is. Arguably an important influence in the history of science fiction really well not only from the point of view of having done a lot of low-budget adaptations of um, Edgar Allan Poe's stories and a few science fiction stories uh, and hiring screenwriters like Richard Matheson and and Charles Beaumont and eventually hiring directors like Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola He's he's an important figure and his movies weren't bad. They were just really really cheap these movies are actively bad. These are post-mystery science theater three thousand movies. Yeah, these are movies that are made for for drunken parties. The only the only way you can possibly watch one is to have friends in the house, pointing out how utterly inane everything on the screen is. I mean, it's <laughs> it's de- they're deliberately bad movies.
0: Yeah,
1: they're 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 bad movies in a way that '50s science fiction movies weren't. The '50s science fiction movie pantheon really uh when you don't look at serious movies like the day the earth stood still the monster movies were the work of jack arnold who did the creature from the black lagoon and so forth and so on i think he did the incredible shrinking man yeah and by the standards of sharknado those movies were analogs analog quality science fiction i mean they by the standards of sharknado those things were really thought out yeah um, i mean the the worst that you could get in The Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, which we expect to be talking about again in a near future podcast since there's a forthcoming novella that deals indirectly with that movie. The only the only science fictional thing they expect you to uh, accept in that is that in a remote lagoon somewhere in South America, a prehistoric creature called the Gill Man in the movie might have survived. Yep. That's not too much to buy. That's a lot easier to buy than the notion that, first of all, there's a tornado in Los Angeles which sucks up all the sharks into it and deposits, deposits them in people's homes. Um, I turned off Sharknado when a shark was chasing a family up the stairs of their house. Yep. Um, <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> Hang on,
0: wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Slow A shark was doing what, Gary? Was chasing a family up their stairs of their house. Now, just to clarify, was this an underwater house, Gary?
1: No. Uh, it turns out that the tornado, which... Only in science fiction movies, it seems, the tornadoes plague Los Angeles. But a tornado or a hurricane had had basically deposited a huge amount of water in their living room, and in the water was a shark, and the water was rising, and the family was running up the stairs, and the shark was
0: snapping after them. How do will do that, Charles? I mean, uh, sharks are snappy, Gary. Not that snappy. <laughs>
1: And, 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 and incidentally, I watched the previews. The, the, this is this is the sci-fi channel's latest, longest-lasting fetish. The previews for something called ghost shark. Ghost yep. shark deals with a shark, which is apparently a ghost. In the previews, it's basically a translucent shark, which means that anytime you get wet, you can get bitten by this shark. Yeah. So you can you can be attacked by this shark in the shower, in the bathtub, when you go <laughs> to the beach, when you're at the municipal swimming pool. Uh, and the by this point any notion of science fiction or even coherent fantasy has, has been left behind <laughs> uh, the, 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 these these are drunken party movies that's all they are.
0: yeah but in, in fairness Gary, I mean drunken par- well that's it I mean you aren't you talking about you know science fiction film as drinking game rather than science fiction film as science fiction film?
1: Well you know that's not necessarily a bad thing
0: because saying but isn't that that, that the case? Oh, I think it is. I, th- I think
1: the, these are not conceived as science fiction. The, the, these are pointedly, deliberately bad uh, films. I mean, uh, occasionally there'll be an actor in them. Uh, John Heard was in one of these movies tonight, who's a decent actor with a decent uh, track record. And you could just see that he's he's thinking, I, I'm, doing, I'm just going to have a whale of a time doing
0: this because it makes no demands on me at all. The advantages. Well, let me, just, let, let me challenge that for a second, though, right? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to challenge. We somebody else challenge this. Are these films, all of them, actually dumb? I mean, some of them are. There's no doubt, but are all of them? Well, that's difficult to say. You mean, all of the films that have been made for the Sci-Fi Channel. No, um, this sort of science fiction film. I mean, like somebody has, you know, well, a common description. I think it's fair to say, of um, what do you call it? Of uh, uh Pacific Rim is that it's a dumb film, right? Hmm. But is that what they all are? They are they actually dumb, or is there more to it than that? I mean, are some of them more complex? Oh, I'm sure some of them are more complex. I would hope the Pacific
1: Rim is more complex. But when I look at Roland Emmerich movies, when I look at movies like uh, 2012 or Independence Day, yeah, they're dumb. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to get past. It. It's really hard to get past the fact that it's. I forget who it is. it's not. It's, it's Will Smith or somebody else. Who somehow manages to defeat these massive alien spacecraft, which have dis- destroyed every city on Earth, with his Apple laptop because he can send a computer worm into its system. <laughs> it's just, it's 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 some screenwriter thinking worm, computer worm is exactly the same as kind of a worm that you would send up, you know. In, 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 okay, I'm it's sold. Just, it's it's but but here's the advantage to that for people. If you're dealing with people who are non-science fiction people who are not interested in rationality, mm-hmm. and they enjoy making fun of the movies, to some extent, the outrageous um, the out- out- outrageous howlers that go into making these movies are a good way to realize that science fiction has a kind of rational base to it. Yeah. Uh, there were any number of people who are not science fiction people who pointed out, and I think it was 2312. Um, that the earth's, I think, I think that was the movie in which, not 2312, excuse me, um, 2012. Um, the, that was the movie, I think, in which scientists discovered that the earth's core was melting <laughs> because of solar activity. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And. And of course, everybody who saw the film, uh, who had any knowledge, not only of science fiction but of remote sciences, uh, wasn't it like melted already? <laughs> if oh, I'm sitting Gary, with a nine-year-old on. boy, there, 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 there's, there's a lesson, there's a lesson to be learned in how to read these movies. Yep. Uh, that, that their dumbnesses becomes uh, a teaching opportunity, at least for grandparents itself. Mm-hmm.
0: So,
1: that's about <laughs> as much as we can do on movies, I figure. <laughs> Fair enough. I can't really
0: argue with that too much, Gary.
1: Well, I mean, there are good science fiction movies out there. there uh, I, I'm i looking forward to Elysium. I was disappointed in Prometheus. Uh, what I, didn't else see,
0: yeah, I didn't see Prometheus. Um, I'm disappointed that due to family commitments, I didn't get to go out and see uh, Star Trek, the latest one, but I'll go see that, you know. Mm-hmm. There movie's right. But, you know, look, I'm, I have to say, I'm sufficiently consumed by the demands of reading that, getting to see a lot of movies really isn't terribly likely. I mean, the one thing we I've just literally – it tells you how far behind I am. I just started watching uh, Person of Interest with Marianne, mm-hmm. which I've never seen before. And it has a fundamentally science fictional kind of – It's a science fiction. It's, it's it's basically a science fiction. It's basically uh,
1: a, a premise not unlike that of uh, um, Paul McCauley's Whole Wide World. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a surveillance science fiction and I by in, interestingly enough people might be interested in watching out for a film which I think is going into theatrical release in a couple of weeks called Europa Report
0: Yeah, much it, well actually weirdly again if, if you're an iTunes sort of user area as some of us are um, what you would find is that you can rent it on iTunes even actually I've already
1: seen it because it's on uh, TV on demand pay per view whatever they call it here yeah. And it's really a very hard SF story, which is, I think, damaged by its adherence to this insidious found footage uh, technique, which I, which is over. I mean, people should learn it's over. It's yes, it's cheap, but basically, the the film has no character development in it at all. But it's extremely believable, and in, in, in terms of space flight, it's ba- it's about a manned mission yeah. to Europe, privately funded, uh, so the. The technical details behind it aren't bad, um, and the plot isn't bad. It's just that it could have been a much better movie. But in terms of the look of the movie, in terms of the latest um, understanding of how technology works, of how the spacecraft would work, it's probably more like 2001 than it is like uh, many of the more recent uh, okay. science fiction films. So it's, 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 it's well thought out and disappointingly executed, I suppose is the way to put it. Fair so, enough. changing the subject the, As other we thing, will. Yep. the other thing I should announce Because I am involved with this organization Called the Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Awards And at FinCon One of those conventions Which I have never been invited to But would love to go to Because I understand it's one of the European, one of the major European conventions The um, nominees for the Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Awards Were announced in Helsinki okay, cool. A couple of weeks ago And I'm going to mention them here Because a couple of them I've actually come across, and this is there are two lessons to be learned here. One is there's an enormous amount of science fiction which we don't see. Yes, um, that's true. And secondly is that sometimes we can see it, but we have to look it up. Mm-hmm. There are two categories in the Science Fiction Translation Awards. Long form, there are, I think, seven nominees. Yes. I'm going to read one is, and, and you can let me know if you've heard of any of these. Okay. Because I've only heard of one or two. One is Atlas, The Archaeology of an Imaginary City. And I'm not going to try to do the Chinese pronunciations correctly. Kai Chung Dong. Yeah. Translated by Anders Hansen. uh, Published by Columbia University Press. Cool. Um, Sometimes international science fiction gets published by university presses because they don't have to make a lot of money. They would like to make a lot of money, but they don't have to. Yeah. Second one, uh, Belka, Why Don't You Bark by... Hideo Furukawa, translated mm-hmm. by Michael Emmerich. Third one is K-Tech the Wizard by Janusz Korczak, translated by Antonio Antonio Lloyd-Jones. Next one is Roadside Picnic, Arkady and Boris Strugatsky, because it's newly translated yep. by, Orlina, by Olena Wormashinsko. And this is the first new translation of it in um, many years, I guess. And so that... Since the award is for the translation and not for the original work per se, that makes it eligible. Seven Terrors by Salvadin Avidic, Avidich, I don't know, translated from the Bosnian. Cool. Oh. <coughs> I didn't know there was Bosnian science fiction, but why shouldn't there be? The oh, uh, another one that's familiar to some of us: three science fiction novellas by J. H. Rosny, uh, I named the uh, Rosny the Elder. Yeah. Translated by Denise Chatelaine and George Slusser, that's Wesleyan, which has done a lot of yep. classic science fiction. And The Whispering Muse by John, I guess, S-J-O with an umlaut N, translated from the Icelandic by Victoria Yeah, <clears throat> Which makes me think, parenthetically, that Icelandic and Norwegian mystery novels and Swedish mystery novels have just become a huge... Uh, market unto themselves, and could this possibly happen with uh, Nordic science fiction? But let me go through the short list of... Sure, yeah. <coughs> short, short form. One is Augusta Prima by Karen Tidbeck, translated by herself from Swedish. Cool. We've talked about that before. Autogenic Dreaming, Interview with the Columns of Cloud by Toby Hirotaka, mm-hmm. translated by Jim Harbert, and that was in The Futurist Japanese. Yeah. Yep. Every Time We Say Goodbye by Zoran Vlahovic, translated from the Croatian by Tatiana Jam, Jambursak, yeah. Goran yeah. Konvici, and the author. That was in a book which I've not heard, even heard of before, called Contact: An Anthology of Croatian Science Fiction. And The Flower of Shazul by Chen Kufan. Kufan, I don't know how to pronounce that either. Yeah. Translated from the Chinese by Ken Liu. A Hundred Ghosts parade, parade Tonight by Zia. I'm not going to try this either. Zia Zia, yep. I guess. Ziji, whatever. Translated from the Chinese, again, by Ken Liu. Yep. That one was in Clark's World and was also in Rich Horton's Best of the Year. Yep. And a single year by uh, Schiller Kleinheinz, translated from the Hungarian by the author in the Apex World of um, Book of World SX, uh, SF, edited by Lavi Tudor. So there's, it seems to me that there's a lot more activity going on than there was a few years ago, and I don't know if the science fiction translation awards is, is probably too young an organization to take credit for that. But do you get the sense that we're seeing more, well, Bosnian, Japanese, Chinese, Croatian? I, th- I, th-
0: I think there's no doubt we're seeing more um, non-European science. or sorry, not non-Western science fiction. Non-Anglo, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm not saying for a second that it didn't always exist, but I'm saying we're seeing it more. And it's partly because of it, you know, the efforts of people like Ken Liu. It's partly, but frankly, for the off- efforts of things like the World SF blog and everything that Lavi Tidhar did, trying to bring more attention to it. There's been a series of anthologies, and all this kind of thing. So there's certainly a greater effort going, you know, deliberately happening out there to try and make us more familiar with um, science fiction. You know, that's coming out from from non-standard, non Anglo kind of places. You know, uh, so, I wonder, so that means yeah. that's interesting to me, but I mean, it, I'm not it, sure it, the, the why, but I couldn't tell you that it's just because, um, if for any particular reason.
1: Um, I, I, I don't know. Well, and we've talked before about how the problems of getting a book translated are mm-hmm. uh, almost insurmountable, but I've, in, in addition to these awards being announced, I've noticed that, uh, you know, later this fall, uh, Tor is putting a reasonable amount of, um, marketing effort behind uh, Wolfgang Yeshiki novel called the Kosanus game mm-hmm. uh, translated and it's, it's and he certainly has been a major uh, uh, German science fiction writer for a long time yeah but uh, almost unknown uh, outside of some of his nonfiction work in the states, Wesleyan has just retranslated or has translated excuse me for the first time. The, the last Jules Verne novel to be translated into English, which is actually not a science fiction novel as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. called Travel Scholarships, of all things. It's a pirate story. Oh, wow. And it looks like a lot of fun. So I think that there's an awareness uh, that's beginning to emerge, first of all, that not all um, non-English language science fiction is an imitation of English language science fiction. I think one of the problems, uh, if, if you go back... 20 or 30 or 40 years, Damon Knight was, was yeah. a promoter of French science fiction. Yep. And he edited he edited and mostly translated a collection of French science fiction stories, some of which were very good. Some French science fiction stories even back in the late 50s and 60s yep. became enormously successful classics. There was a writer named George Langelan whose story The Fly yep. um, appeared in Playboy and has been the basis of two movies. Um, there were Writers like Marcel Ayme, who are kind of surrealist science fiction writers, but the problem is, I think, and this was actually told to me by a friend of mine who had translated some of my locust columns into French at one point. Oh wow! That, that he thought a lot of French science fiction was simply imitation American science fiction, bad imitation American science fiction, imitation Philip K. Dick. Yeah. I don't think that's true anymore, if it was ever true. Yeah. But I do think that for a generation of American readers. The impression that they had of European science fiction was basically Perry Rodin. Yeah. Which was not impressive, and that that makes you think that okay, German, French, Eastern European, Bosnian—the only science fiction, the, the only science fiction traditions that seemed separate and independent from the Anglo-American traditions were in Poland and the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, so so you did have Stanislaw, and you did have the Strugatsky brothers. Because they were writing out of such an uh, intensely science-fictional bureaucracy in their own countries yeah, that their work had a kind of political and satirical edge that, that was missing from a lot of American and English science fiction at that point. I think that's so, like a yeah, reasonable point. So, so I think they added to the world dialogue of science fiction um, in, in, in a way that was impossible to ignore, even in the 60s. Now, my impression is that every country has its own version of science fiction. Um, One of the, the two stories I've actually read on this short fiction, The Hundred Ghosts Prayed Tonight is not in any sense, an imitation of an American science fiction story. It's a very, it's a very convincing story. It clearly has to do, it has to do something with the sort of cultural reforms and the sort of, uh, technologizing of urban China. But it's it's a really kind of disturbing and moving story yeah. Uh, and would be whatever language would appear. And the Karen Tidbeck story, um, I'm not sure I would have chosen Augusta Prima from uh, the collection Jagannath, but all of the stories in there seem to me to be something different from anything else I'd read uh, last year when, of course, that collection of stories won the Crawford Award as well. Yeah.
0: Well, yes, yeah, I mean, and I just read a, a new uh, story of hers as well called Moonlight, which is in the same kind of area. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating, interesting, and I mean, actually, she's an interesting case because, you know, I'm not sure how much of her work is translated and how much she writes directly into English as well now.
1: Uh, that, that's the same question I've had sometimes about Hanyu ryan near me. I, I guess he writes entirely in English now, but… Weren't some of his older stories translated by him, or assertive? absolutely?
0: They're they're written in Finnish and then translated mm-hmm. by him into English. But I don't. I really don't know whether um, whether um, Karen actually now writes in English and then translates. On one hand, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't make much difference the quality of the stories, but it's mm-hmm. um, it's kind of yeah curious. Well, it's it's a curiosity from the point of view of a literary scholar because
1: if you have a writer who, let's say, takes a ten year old story. And translates it into English are they really translating it or are they revising it as they go I don't know and I don't the only way to find out would be to ask them Um, you may not know them but I I think one of the things that is happening uh, not as much as it probably could or should where you have people who are fluent writers in English like Ryan Yemi and Tidbeck that they can do that yeah Um, very much. I think that's much more difficult, probably, for many Chinese writers, for some Bosnian writers, and uh, in, in the case of, um, oh, the book, uh, the um, collection of stories that uh, Ursula Gwynn published f- from um, a writer who was, uh, I think, a Hungarian writer. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm t- totally blanking on the name right now. And in that case, the, the author knew English well enough to read the English translations and approve them, but didn't feel comfortable in, in translating them himself. Um, there were a lot of writers historically, including some of the more influential people more or less in our field, like, like Jorge Luis Borges, who chose not to translate most of their own works, but they wrote and spoke English perfectly so that... I would, have think, I would have thought it would be utterly <laughs> terrifying to be a translator of Borges since he could read your English as well as he could read his original Spanish.
0: And <laughs> was probably not afraid to
1: use his powers for evil. <laughs> and was not afraid to do that at all. But I, 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 the idea of things like uh, the Apex uh, book, of World SF, you mentioned La Vie Tider's World SF blog, the fact that Clark's World, um, a lot of the magazines, I think, are open to this sort of thing. And the fact that you have... Uh, writers like ken Lu who are willing to do this kind of translation for what cannot be a lot of remuneration if any at all hmm. um and that's really been the problem with novels i think short fiction occasionally um we would always see um uh, european or japanese stories show up in anthologies because short fiction is not that much of a of an investment to translate yeah. uh, but I, I know that one novel which I, I know Tor tried uh, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, um, The Carpet uh, Baggers by Andreas Heschbach, which I thought was a terrific novel yeah. and should have been one of the major novels of the year. And it, mm, it may have done all right, but it certainly seems to have disappeared from view since then. And Heschbach was, like, like uh, Jeschke, one of the major uh, German science fiction writers. Uh, yep. In in a country which has a substantial and sub, as far as I can tell, um, sophisticated science fiction readership, Perry yep. Rodin notwithstanding.
0: Yep, I think that's true.
1: So I don't know what this means except that people should pay attention to these things. And I think, I think one of the problems is that occasionally you can become kind of a brand name, and, and the in in the sense Karen Tidbeck has already become that. There was yeah. enough impact from that the people will watch for her stories. But when you see one or two stories from a Chinese writer you've never heard from uh, before, then it's worth trying to remember the name and seeing if other things might become available. And,
0: yeah. and can, I, can I just say, by the way, that, that's a fascinating insider's perspective. And hmm. you're going, what the hell do you mean? Uh, this is what I mean, Gary. You okay. just said that Karen Tidbeck, who's had one short book published at the back hmm. end of last year, is now a brand name for something. Could she possibly become that ubiquitously known in that in this period of time, or is this just an insider's perspective on things? Not that I'm challenging her or anything else. I was. Uh, this probably is, is
1: is a bias on my part. I was, I, as you as you know, I manage administer the Crawford Awards, and she won the Crawford Awards. Sure, so sure. I was very much aware of that. A copy of the book came from um, Cheeky Frog Press. Yes. Um, and it was one of those things that just struck me as being really amazing. Uh, and it got a lot of attention. And she's gotten a lot of attention. And, and she's kind of entered the dialogue. And as you mentioned, her yeah. short fiction is appearing now. That struck me as, when I read that book, um, before the Crawford issue came up at all, that struck me as much the way Margot Lannigan's Black Jews struck me. It was when I first, of that, yeah. Not really knowing who she was. Um, And not knowing she was going to follow it up with a a lot of other things. It seems to me that Karen Tidbeck is in a position to do that. She can write in English. She can translate her own work. She's connected at least to the European science fiction community. She's been invited to international conferences. The reason she may not be as visible within the field is that she's also gaining visibility outside the field. It's kind of a mainstream postmodern experimental writer sort of thing. Uh But, yeah, that might be an insider's perspective. You're absolutely right.
0: Well, just because what I'm intimately aware of is, I mean, the little uh, sign-off care of our friend uh, Jonathan McElmont about us being the mullers of Cood Street is meant ironically and funnily and all that kind of thing. But at the Mm. end of the day, we are fairly deep inside the world that we inhabit. You know, we are science fiction insiders. uh, And sometimes I, I do question our own judgment on these things where I sit there and go, well, wait a second. You know. Is so-and-so really all that to the rest of the world? Because we're looking out from the very middle of everything and kind of going, well, Karen Tidbeck is this terrific new writer who's come along through Cheeky Frog. Everyone's talking about her, up for major awards, absolutely terrific, talented, stands in for all of her, her, you know, her, her domestic science fiction and fantasy and everything else in our, mm. uh, in our eyes. But is that true of, you know someone else i mean i'm going to bet that if you went into your average bookstore it doesn't have a karen Tidbeck book in it i'm sure
1: it doesn't and i'm sure it does not have an m rickert book in it and it probably sure. doesn't have yeah. a Margot lanagan book in it
0: now that's not a, a flaw but it's just a perspective thing
1: no i i think you're right I, 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 as you mentioned that I, I found myself asking when and how did we become sf insiders
0: and did we plan <laughs> on it or did, did we get a card in the mail saying you can well come to i the mean the this Smoker's is a kind of interesting house? And it, it speaks to something else, and it's directly relevant. So I'll just stick with it. Um, I had this conversation with a friend, the, you know, the other day. But if if someone else wanted to do a best science fiction and fantasy of the year, who could you get to do it? And mm. the response was, it's very hard to find anybody, not because there aren't people that are uh, willing, but because it's a particular skill, a particular yeah. worldview, right? And I'm thinking, well, there's nothing particularly special. You just spend 40 years reading everything and think about it and talk to all your friends about it and have it be the center of all the things you're doing for long enough. And sooner or later, you're that person too, right? Mm. And up to a point, I mean, you and I have both been reading science fiction for a very long time and particularly for the last, say, 15 years, I think it's fair to say we're focused very intently upon the science fiction field. And that's how you become a science fiction insider, Gary, isn't it?
1: I think there are a lot of people out there who have been reading science fiction for 30 or 40 years and who would not think of themselves as science fiction insiders at all.
0: Well, then is it also that you choose to get involved, that you don't just sit back and consume it, but you you begin to respond and become involved with it for an extended period of time? Because what I'm concerned about here is – and this is something which I'm sure some of our friends who are listening might be echoing at the moment – uh, maybe the path to insidership is more blocked than you and I would perceive, and so it's a, not as simple a matter of that. You know, It's not a matter of just somebody somewhere going, well, gosh, I love this, and staying focused on it and you know, doing things, and then becoming an insider. It takes something else, some other kind of internal gatekeepers permission or willingness to focus on you and take you seriously you know I mean the obvious example you know area here is like if, if, if you're not male white Anglo-Saxon you know is it mm-hmm. harder for you to become a science fiction insider should you want to become what's well, frankly a fairly dubious thing but if, should you want to become that is it a lot harder I don't know and I, I
1: the, the only examples I can think of because I have no sense of when I cross that line mm. I I'm fairly certain and you may have had the same experience that that crossing that sort of... It's not even a line. It's sort of a vague, fog-bound field, and somewhere you go into that field and come out the other end. And, and in my case, I was simply dragged into it by Charles Brown.
0: Um, I, and, I, I have an element of that, too. You know, I was just thinking about that, that we were pulled in by a, a fellow... A, you know, a genuine gatekeeper, I guess. Oh, because, yeah. Because he'd been around in the field for all that time, through all of you know the, the early stages of North American science fiction, certainly. Um... And whilst I had been involved actively in Australian science fiction, that didn't really make me an insider in the field to the extent that I am or am not today. Um, so, you know, maybe we were escorted past the fence a bit. I don't know. Um, and is that different from what happens to anybody else? I mean, if you look at somebody, I, mean, I, I don't know who I would choose. I mean, to, 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 to identify as a quote-unquote science fiction insider, I don't know how much of it is coming to think that you're not as much as anything. Because, I mean, what I've noticed is if you're active in some way, then people respond to you in that context. You know, like if you've you know we've got some sort of like work kind of reason to, to be involved, you know, it's like I go to conventions, people will pay attention to me because, uh, well, you know, I'm editing anthologies, they might sell me stories, that kind of thing. And then yeah. we become friendly and we have a combined work and personal relationship reason to interact. And that works really well. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Gary. I think that,
1: um, well, I mean, you're right. I, you mentioned you, be, you, you get involved in some activity. You do something which brings you some recognition in the field. I, I, I write Criticism. You edit Anthologies. We both got involved with the magazine, which was, you know, for a long time centrally involved with the field and, and still is, hopefully. Um, and so the, you, you get some recognition. You begin to make friends. You get to the point where a large part of your social circle consists of people that don't live in your own community at all that you see only conventions and you have, and I I've I've known that for years that some of my closest friends, yourself included are not anywhere near, um, a place where I can have lunch even, you know, once a month. or So, so your social life is there. You're known by people in the field. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how that happens. The only, I, 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 she'll probably kill me for mentioning it. The only time I've had a chance to watch this, is with our friend Karen Burnham, who is, -hmm. she's now finished a book on Greg Egan. She's now got her own podcast with Karen Lord. She's involved with both Locusts and Strange Horizons and so forth. And the only reason I know that is because Charles and I met her at uh, a Worldcon where she was trying to figure out how uh, an engineer working basically through NASA contracts could get into this field. And she's, and and what she did was very much what you and I, uh, talked about earlier. She went back and read everything. Part of yeah. it was because Charles Brown was determined to be her mentor and he gave her a reading list. And unlike almost anybody else, she actually read it. Yeah. Read uh, and read it intelligently. Um, I don't know how. I'm looking at other friends of ours who seem to be much more knowledgeable about the inner workings of the science fiction community than I am, like Cheryl Morgan, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never talked to them about how they got there because Cheryl certainly had a very good um, online scene for a long time and is a very good reviewer herself. But how does that happen? I think it may happen differently in the UK than it does in the US and maybe still differently in Australia.
0: Yeah, I I think that, uh, well, first of all, there is the whole kind of, you know, what time you can you, you, you can become – well, sort of when you can become involved, how you become involved. Uh, Australia has obviously domestically the same just – just to become known in the Australian science fiction community has its own challenge because, you know, af- after all, everybody is still miles away from everybody, everybody yeah, else. That's true. You know, uh, that doesn't change. Um, so, you know, I think – yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the actual solution is here or what the answer is here other than to say that um, –
1: I will it, say one thing. I think there's well. a distinction between being an insider, which is a – it's a term which I'm fundamentally uncomfortable with. But being an outsider in the world of science fiction and anthologies and publishing and writing and editing and reviewing yep. is, it seems to me, uh, at least in the States, a very different thing from being an insider in the world of SF fandom.
0: Well, it does. I mean, I was thinking – I mean I remember all of us – well, anybody who w- follows the Hugos will remember – Christopher Garcia's amazingly emotional response to winning the Hugo. Yeah. And it occurs to me that Chris, who's obviously a very active um, and respected member of fandom, as, as well as the science fiction community at large, um, he, no doubt, I assume, um, he, um, he's, he's not... A publishing insider, you know, he, he's a fandom insider, and, and I'm not a fandom insider, and I know it intimately, you know. Uh, yeah, th- it's that's a different exactly thing. Point.
1: Yeah, I, I've got friends here uh, in Chicago who are uh, um, smoths, I guess. I'm not sure what smoff means. I know what it means secret masters of fandom, but that's I'm what not exactly how you get to be. There. Um, but who are stunned when they get to have. A ten-minute conversation with I don't know, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman or Terry Pratchett or, or Peter Straub, that sort of thing. So, so they're they're but but they they're the people who run the conventions. Yeah, they're the people who make fandom work, who, may, who make that sort of thing work. But that sometimes bleeds over into professionalism, and sometimes doesn't. The people I know who are actively fans in terms of fanish activity, in terms of you know fanzines and and conventions specifically. Um, generally seem to have two or three uh, writers that they're very proud to count as friends, and yep. they do count them as friends, and they are friends. And there are writers who are very comfortable within that world. Um, Joe and Gay Haldeman move through the fanish world like, you know, like like fish in a school of other fish. They're they're completely. <laughs> they I'm
0: not too fine a to point on it, yeah, okay,
1: yeah. But it's still Joe Haldeman. I mean, it's why well, uh, it, it, a good example of of, of the the way somebody can become so in, in accepted in Spanish culture, a couple of, many years ago, uh, there was a convention called icon, which is in Iowa. And yep. Joe Haldeman has been going there, uh, with Gabe for decades now at this point. Um, and they just, it's a small convention. They have one or two other guests besides Joe. Yeah. And Joe has become such a fixture that when he's trying, we were trying to, um, have a discussion or something. Um, in in, in in some anteroom to a um, to some event that was going on at the convention and and the, the, these these sort of third string local Iowa fans came out and told us to keep down the laughter because we were interfering with the gaming that was going on in the next room and my immediate reaction this is this is Joe Haldeman you idiots <laughs> this this is why you have these conventions but but he had become such a fixture within that world sure. and is so popular and, and, and such a regular guy within that world that uh, the, 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 there wasn't that sense of uh, celebrity about him at all. Well,
0: that's uh, not a
1: bad I, thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. I think it's great that Joe and Gay can do that and a few yeah. other people could do it as well. Uh, I think fewer fewer and fewer writers do that, and yeah. I think if you want to really know what's going on in terms of um, you know the, the latest... Publishing trends, which editors have skipped to which houses, who's been consolidated, who's who's the latest person to be bought by Hachette or Bertelsmann or whatever it is. That sort of thing, that sort of discussion doesn't seem to make its way into fandom.
0: Yeah. Fair enough.
1: All of which doesn't mean to sound at all disparaging of what fans do because what fans do are the sorts of things that I at least could not begin to know how to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, as we trickle towards the very, very end of the podcast, Gary, because we are, we've trickled around. This has been one of those ones where we've found our so- topic as we've got, gone. Well, we had some topics here. What if, yeah, Sharknado and, and, and gatekeeping and, yeah, you, and you, you picked, you picked international topics. SF. Okay, oh, good.
1: Because Sharknado is pretty much the bottom of the barrel there in this discussion. But,
0: but it's I there. Don't know. I, think, I
1: think we have to acknowledge that Sharknado is out there and that is. That is part of this cloud of associations that people bring with them yeah. when they hear the term science fiction.
0: I think that's true. Um, now, let me ask you this, just for, for, for the purposes of the podcast. One, what are you reading right now? I am reading the new Graham Joyce
1: novel, The Year of the Lady Bird. And are you loving it? I'm halfway through it and I never I never want to say that until I'm more than halfway through. Okay. This is this is his most autobiographical novel as far as I can tell because some of it echoes anecdotes I've heard him tell.
0: Well um, let me ask you this I mean what you you never want to say that you're halfway through a book until you're halfway through or you never want to say say that you love it until you're halfway through. it? Oh I'm it's it's, it's, it's I I don't want to,
1: because sometimes, and especially Graham Joyce can do this, he can sometimes do something in the second half of the book that will make it completely different from what you thought you were reading. I'm finding it very ingratiating. I could not wait. This is my, I I assume this is a high recommendation. I could not wait to turn Sharknado off. I could have sat through through all of Sharknado, but I wanted to get back to Year of the Ladybird because I knew that I was going to get more pleasure page by page minute by minute out of that Graham Joyce novel that I was going to get from the entire shark festival on the sci-fi channel this week. So yes, I'm I'm, I'm liking it quite a bit. It's it's, it's the fantastic element in it so far has yet to erupt. It's there. I can see it coming. It hasn't erupted. The other thing which I have, and I have mixed feelings about reading, but I'm going to read it is Margaret Atwood's mad Adam, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is the third book in her Oryx and craig trilogy. Yeah, well, you should
0: have to give it a go and then let us know what you think about it when you've, when you've read it. it. Uh, when I've read it, yes. Read it, it yes. Adam, when I've met Adam. Did.
1: Uh, apart from that, there are... Um...